Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. We're in a series entitled More, Jesus from Beginning to End. And we're talking about this, that to know God is to long for more Jesus. And today, as we've looked at God's more for us, we're going to see that God's more comes by more and more. We're going to answer the biggest question of the Christian life today. I'm going to see if you catch it when we answer it before I identify it. But our passage confronts us this morning Do you know what you are living for? Do you know what you are living for and living for more of? I think the fact of the matter is we were created and hence we are all living for more of something. Do you know what you're living for more of? As you look at your life to find that common thread that strings all things together, not just in what you say but in how you spend your time, your your energy, the resources of your life, and even how you invest in relationships. The common thread that links all of these will identify that for which you are living for or for more of. And what I want you to walk away with today is simply this, that God gives more when Christians live with the one priority to please him in all of life. Passages like this link us in the present day to the ancient days. And we find there's so much in common today as there was in that day. And the common link there, humanity, people have always been people and will always be people. And that's why these passages are so potent, so helpful for us. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I want to begin reading in verse 1. And I'll work through the verses as we work through the sermon today. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 records, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God your sanctification. Let's pause there for just a moment. Paul takes a turn at chapter 4 in 1 Thessalonians as he does in all of his letters. And where he has laid a theological foundation, now he turns to a practical application. And that's what we find in this passage of Scripture. Everything he will say from this point forward in the letter is because of what he has already said in the first three chapters of the letter. That's why he uses the word finally. Sometimes he uses the word therefore, but it is a word that links all that has come before as the foundation for all that will proceed after. And he helps the Thessalonians apply what he has been teaching them. 
If you remember, we looked at five trajectories of once we are saved in Christ Jesus, how God leads us from that moment or that point of salvation throughout the remainder of our life to live for more and how we can see a trajectory of growth spiritually, of maturity in our walk and in our likeness with Jesus Christ. And what Paul does at the beginning of chapter 4 is he stands at the apex of all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, and he simply shouts, more, more. God has more for you. And friends, that's what we should hear today, that God has more for each one of us, that what he has done to date is important, and he has done all that he has done to reveal himself to you and to strengthen you for the days in which you have lived. But today we can be absolutely confident that as we stand here, all he has done to reveal himself should convince us that he has more for us. In life. And so Paul urges them, as he urges us, to live to please God more and more with their lives. Now, you may think in a passing thought, how in the world can I possibly do this? In other words, often when we hear something like that, we think of the responsibility or we think of the obligation being piled on higher and higher, right? Well, that's not what Paul is saying at all. As a matter of fact, if you remember, God's more comes to us by God's work for us and God's work in us that God might work through us. And so when Paul exhorts us to the more and more of our life, he's telling us it is because of the more God is doing by his grace within us. His instruction is such as this. We ask and urge you how in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Listen, friends, how are we saved? But by the grace of God alone. And it is by the grace of God that we are sanctified in this life as well. And by God's grace in our life, he grants us to enter into this great transformation to participate with his divine work. Verse 2, he says, For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Friends, every command of God is an absolute impossibility without Jesus Christ. God's never asked you to do anything for him without, first of all, promising you, guaranteeing you, and accomplishing for you what he's already done for us. And when Paul says, we give you these instructions through the Lord Jesus, he commends us to never forget where it is we draw our strength and how it is we live day by day with Christ as our source. Through the Lord Jesus means that we can live God's commands because of Jesus. The greatest and the highest command defines the Christian's priority for life. And this is a familiar verse for us as a church. It's not unknown. Matthew chapter 22 
Jesus cites Deuteronomy when he reminds us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And what Paul is doing is applying this greatest command. He is urging the Thessalonians to live it out in all of life. And so as he shows us how it is that we set Christ as the one priority of life, he provides for us two practices, two practices that I want us to look at today. Practices in the Christian life are important. Practice is important, is it not? You play the way you practice. I don't know about you, but in youth sports, I was always told this. If you practice poorly, you play poorly. It didn't really matter for me how I practiced. I was going to play poorly regardless but hey, when I became uh, the field crew, my, my life went up uh, in that. Because I, I could rake the mound, right? I could take care of that. There was no pressure in the batter's box at that point. Practices in the Christian life are important. And here's the reason. Because until we've obeyed, we haven't truly believed. You see, that's where God's commands really press upon us. Until we've obeyed, we haven't truly believed. To believe is far more than just to intellectually comprehend. Christians are called to live by faith because it is when we live by faith that we are trusting the work of Christ for us to be carried out within us. And faith begins when we act on that which we have come to know is true of God. And what Paul is doing here is he's applying faith for us. He is applying the knowledge of God to the reality of life. You see, ritual and routine may be a false front for many. It is true that many try to live the Christian life just by going through the routine of what they think they ought to do or is right. And, and many Christians get caught up in this as well because we fail to remember why we do or how to do. But friends, never let that be a substitute to remember that only obedience that perseveres proves that belief in God is fueling our life. That's the grace of repentance, is it not? Of conviction. That when the Spirit of God says to us, you're doing the wrong thing. When the Spirit of God says to us, you're doing uh, for the wrong reason. That, that we can turn from our own ways, from ourself, from our sin, and we can return to Christ, who is our Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. And so as we look at these two practices today, I want to commend you to let them confront your own life and see how the practices of your life are pressing you in to trust Christ in the application of your life more and more in every way because we are called to live by faith and this is the only way that we can walk with Jesus in a way to please God the first practice that I offer to you today is this live with one priority to please God when you live more and more by his call to holiness live with the one priority to please God when you live more and more by his call to holiness. I, I think one of the reasons that the, the church today struggles as she does with spiritual power is because we talk far too little about holiness. 
and about how important it is for our lives. Not just important, far more than just important, essential for the life of the Christian. And this is what Paul says at the beginning of verse 3. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Did you see that, friends? Paul just answered the biggest question of the Christian life. What is God's will for my life? Have you ever asked that question? We have all asked that question, have we not? What is God's will? He gives it. I don't know. The answer seems a little, oh, that's not exactly what I was expecting, kind of. You know, I mean, it's not that that's bad. I don't want to say that's bad because it's fine. I don't want to say sanctification is not good. But I was hoping for maybe something a little more particular to my situation today, right? I can tell you for every situation you find yourself in, for every circumstance that you wrestle and struggle through, or even that you succeed your way through, there's never a moment in time when God's will is anything other than your sanctification. This is God's will for your life in all things. Holiness, friends, is not a pie-in-the-sky topic that only a few should entertain striving towards but it is the will of God for all who are in Christ Jesus holiness is the will of God for every Christian and sanctification is the process through which more and more our life is marked with godliness as Jesus becomes greater and we become less Paul applies the instruction with this directive. Go back to verse 3. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. He applies the instruction to pursue holiness by giving a warning and a direction of abstaining from sexual immorality. You see, sexual immorality was a defining characteristic, a major cultural marker of the first century world. It's so interesting to me how different and advanced we believe that we are today from the world of the first century. And it turns out over and over again that we're just like them. And most markedly so in the absolute worst of ways. Against today's prevailing ideology that there's no binding moral standard for sexual activity or sexuality, we must ask, why is sexual purity so important for the Christian? Why is sexual purity so important for the Christian? Friends, purity is essential for holiness because sexuality entwines body and soul by the activity that engages the parts or the organs of our sexuality and gender. Understand the way that God has created us that links eternity in our souls to the here and to 
the now. Sexual immorality is sin with a distinct effect, the damaging, Paul says, of one's own self. Sexual immorality damages us in the depths of a person's being as it roots the effects of sin far more deeply within. Its direct link with our identity and our being drives the sin of sexual immorality and its condemnation deeper. Its shame is driven more deeply. Its guilt is driven more deeply. And the deception that arises from it more deeply. So that it affects us not only in far greater but in deeper ways than we can fully know or imagine. And all of this by the simplest of acts. Not only, Paul says, for the individual who participates, but even more so for the culture that propagates sexual immorality and the effects that get compounded through it. What's tolerated then becomes normalized so that it becomes even wrong to oppose it or to speak against it. We see that in our day and time, friends. For the effect of sexual immorality in a culture champions, celebrates, and guards evil as right, and yea, even as good. Some refuse to believe that sexual sin affects anyone other than just the participant. And in today's reality, the whole world is darkened by confusion regarding sexual immorality and how we were created. The problems we face are no doubt extensive and complex and can't be unraveled just in a few moments. Some, of guilt, some are guilty of sin by participation in this way. Many, many more suffer under the influence of sexual immorality's compounded effects in the culture that leads them to even greater sin. This is more and more what I'm seeing today, friends, not only in the culture outside of, but within the church as well. Every argument against biblical sexuality and gender compounds this issue to increase confusion and to increase condemnation and to compound the effects of wickedness. And juxtaposed to sexual immorality, God's will for every person is sexual purity to guard the depths of our being from sin's damage and deception. We surely don't have time to pursue every way in which not only by participation but even the influence of in which we are all associated with in the culture at the very least, how it has affected us. But I want you to see at least in general terms because unless you've told yourself that your sin is not that bad, I beckon upon you to hear me today. All sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant is immorality. Regardless of whether it includes two people or more or less, whether it is what Paul says in Romans natural or unnatural, all sexual immorality damages deeply 
against the soul of a person. And when you practice sexual immorality with your body, you give sin control over your soul. I want you to listen to Romans explain the pursuit of more in holiness, specifically in regard to fighting sexual immorality. In Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, Paul writes these words, and listen to them, and read along on the screen as I read aloud. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. And listen to this. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. What you participate in determines the path to where you are headed. One, lawlessness of by participation to greater lawlessness by identification. Impurity, obedience to righteousness that leads to more righteousness. Verse 22 But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, your sin are not hidden from God. And that which you practice and participate in with your life is ruling your soul. You present the members of your body for enslavement by participation. And when you participate, You normalize the act and you compound the effects of sin's condemnation and specifically in your thinking. And Romans says once you are enslaved, you begin to think that the prison in which you're living is normal. That this is the way it ought to be. Because these are the walls that I see every day. So why wouldn't this be normal? You see, you begin by seeing your sin as not that big of a deal. We talked about that last week. 
as a way to excuse it, to dismiss it, to pander to it, but only in private or secret. You see, your sin is not that big of a deal because it only seems like a small beacon dot on a massive radar screen of life. Is it really that big a deal? But soon, and and long before you recognize it, your sin becomes a telescope, a tunnel, if you will, through which you see all things. And the only things that you see are in the tunnel of your vision. And what you think you see clearly with a microscope Because you feel like you see the depths of it and understand it. And you've got a handle on it. That microscope is little nothing more than a cheap kaleidoscope. Entertaining your selfish desires and your own propensities. Paul says impurity only leads to lawlessness and death. And more lawlessness as you participate more. And more. Purity by obedience leads to holiness and the abundant life that Jesus died to give you. So, what is the answer to sexual immorality? Even though it affects us in a much more distinct way, Paul teaches. We are redeemed from it as we are redeemed from all sin. For the blood of Jesus is sufficient for our full forgiveness and cleansing even from sexual immorality. And God is able to reverse the curse even in the depths of our thinking and our feeling. And so Paul says, where do we begin? Pastor, if I find myself living in this curse, where do I begin? Paul says in verse 4 that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. You begin digging out, if you will, in the same place you began digging the hole you got yourself into. Participation. Learning how to control your own body in holiness and in honor. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Do you know why we have come to believe as a society and as a culture that there is no standard for sexual morality other than what I think is right is right for me? Because of the depths and the extent to which we've participated that have deceived us to believe that that is actually true. And in every form of sexual immorality, the path is the same. Oh, some people stop before they go as far as the others. But it's the same road for everyone who practices it. And that's why Paul says, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? They are the people he's referring to here that do not know God. It's not just an ethnic group. It is a spiritual group of people who live outside the commands and the instructions of God given to us in his word. The Gentiles are those who don't think God's got a stake in all of this. Because his morality standard is archaic. It's old school. It's ancient. And yet he's talking to people in the first century who were already riddled by this sin and being fully deceived, living under its deep condemnation, shame, 
and guilt. And he says this, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Friends, this first practice of pursuing holiness shows you where you root your identity. Your practice reveals what you believe about you and what you believe about Jesus. Christians identify with Jesus Christ in all things at all times. Paul's strongest words for Christians are directed towards sexual immorality. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, when Paul is applying the gospel to the people of Colossae, he tells them this. He gives them three levels of how to address sin, and the first level is the harshest. He says this, put to death what is earthly in you. Every time you show mercy for this activity in your life, you are failing to put it to death and you are sourcing your own life in it. No matter how inconsequential you may think the act to be in the moment, you failed to put it to death. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, and passion. He warns that we never forget the Lord is an avenger of his holiness. Friends, if you want to know when fear is actually the healthiest thing you can feel, it is when you are walking in impurity, when you are walking in ungodliness and in wicked ways. And you may think, I don't feel like there is any problem with this. I don't think there is any problem with this. It's because the level of the deception that sin has worked in your soul has perpetrated so deeply within you that you couldn't because you're being ruled by that sin. It may seem for a time that you escape the consequences of sexual immorality, though that too is merely deception. Paul says, know this, that the Lord knows And he will avenge every injustice according to his holiness. There is no way that you will avoid the avenging wrath of God as long as you live outside of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And if you fail to trust him, you will fall before his judging hand. Defeating sexual immorality begins by filling your life with a greater glory. You see, friends, you are are feeding what you love by what you do. And here's what Paul says. He he gives us a greater glory. Look at verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Listen, friends, the only way to purge a lesser glory and a lesser love from your life is to replace it with a greater love and a greater glory. Stop trying to rid yourself of these lesser glories and not putting anything else in its place. You will never live absent of love. You were created and designed to run after love, to run after acceptance, to run after after glory you're looking for beauty you're looking for strength you're looking for glory in all of your life and in all of your ways God does not want you to deny that 
He doesn't want you to settle for less than what you were created for. That's what Paul is telling us here in in verse 7. That God has not called us for impurity. He's called us for holiness because it is a greater glory. Faith, friends, this is exactly where faith begins. This is why our practices are so important. Faith begins by asking in every situation, in every temptation, when it first strikes you in your thought or in your desire, in the midst of every circumstance as you are confronted with it, is this what God has called me to? Every moment is a why in the road to follow God on the path of holiness or to walk away from him on the way of wickedness. Is this what God has called me to? Is this the way of holiness? God calls us to holiness because he created us to bear his image. And in the bearing of his image, he has redeemed us that we might bear and reflect his glory. And when we live outside of his holiness, we live in a way that actually bears false witness to who he is and what he has done for us. And no matter how much we may struggle or suffer, when we walk by faith in him, we bear a glory that is far greater than our life could ever produce in and of itself. As long as you bear a lesser image than God created you to bear and has redeemed you for, you propagate a life of misery, a life of shame, and a life of suffering, and you will cover it up with success and all that success offers to you, but you will never wash it out of you. That when the sounds quieten and the lights go dim, That'll be the only thing you see and hear. And you won't be able to get rid of it. But God wants to wash it away from you. Purity for the honor of Jesus Christ is a worthy glory. It is also an effective, practical strategy. That's why Paul is teaching it here. The more you walk in darkness by the practices of your life, the darking your thinking and the darking, darker your patterns of thinking become. And the more deeply deceived about your life, in your life, you will become. You become, in increasing ways, more like the sin you practice, the idol that you adore, the lie that you believe, the wrong that you serve, or the evil that you follow. And those things are not determined by what you think of them. They are determined by what God's Word has said about them. With every temptation, remind yourself, Christian, this is not God's will for my life. This is not what God has called me to. Sin is working to deceive me and to destroy me. The lion is growling, ready to roar and devour me if I give in to this. This is not what I want. I want Jesus and I want more of Jesus in the face of this temptation. I live for Jesus and I live for his holiness. And then as you remind yourself of that, get up and go pursue it in whatever small or great way that the Lord is leading you to, that he's taught you to. What you practice will determine the path upon where you are headed. 
Get up and do something about what you know to be true and who you know to be faithful. The one way we live to experience God's more abundant life is to practice holiness more and more by faith. Because that is God's will for us in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 8, he gives us a final word of instruction. Therefore, whoever disregards this, he says, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You may not be enslaved to sexual sin, friends, but don't dismiss how it may be affecting you specifically in your thinking. And ask the Holy Spirit to illumine the Word of God, to convict you, to correct you, to instruct you, and to guide you as you pursue holiness. But in all you do, do not quench the Spirit, because the quenching of God's Spirit is the one sin that cannot be undone. Live with one priority, to please God more and more by living according to His call on you. For holiness. Set his righteousness before you and pursue it in all you do. Now, the second practice, beginning in verse 9, is shorter because he's reminded us of it several times. But the second practice that he provides for us is this to live with the one priority to please God when you live more and more to love one another. Look at verse 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this. How? More and more. You want God's more? It's going to come by your more and more. The second practice is that we continue what God has taught us to live in love for one another. And listen, friends, don't think these are two separate practices. They're actually one and the same. One and the same. They go together. It's much easier to fight temptation by loving others. You have to make people something less than human in order to even want to use them or dismiss them to participate in sexual sin. When you live to love others as God has loved you, you are practicing one more intentional strategy to pursue your own holiness. When you engage the intentional practice to demonstrate love for other people, you're actually strengthening the reminder of God's holiness for your own life. He says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Verse 1 and verse 10, by the more and more practices of our life that pursue what God has placed for us. We set Christ as the priority of our life to receive God's more. When we live in God's more abundant life, we strive to excel in honoring Jesus by the way that we love others. Paul's, Paul provides some very practical ways to do it as well. It's not about, well, I've got to put one more thing on my to-do list. Actually, Paul is pressing against that ideology and learning how to love others. It's not an earth-shattering or a never-before-heard-of tactic. Rather, it's very simple and it's very straightforward. Look at verse 11 and 12. To aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Listen to me, friends. Satan doesn't want you to believe this, but the simplest acts of how we conduct our lives can produce the greatest expression of love for others. 
a small act of help, an uninvited word that's offered for encouragement, a note received just to encourage. We have no idea, though the world may not promote it and you may win no awards over it, it may be the one source of encouragement for that day that moves a person from ruinous to righteousness. From a life of hopelessness to hope for tomorrow. Paul offers the greatest contrast to how we're encouraged today versus our social media age. I mean, the social media influence upon us is heavily because it tells us this. Wake up and tell the world your first thought. You do not want to know my first thought. It's never good when I first wake up. I promise you that. That's usually how it begins. Social media says, be the first to speak the final word on every issue. Don't worry about the facts. They just only get in the way. Go ahead. Tell everybody what it ought to be. State your position boldly and don't back down or let others run over you. Be funny, be compelling, and be perfect. Because we don't want you to bore us or to litter our news feed. I will unfollow you. Keep it short. Our attention span can't last the full 140 characters. Surely, the influence of the social media age exploits our great privilege and presumption to speak incessantly with little concern for others or accountability for our words. Now, that doesn't mean if you're on social media, you can't do something different. This is just the flow of the current. That moves along with it. Paul understood the trouble of, the Thessalonica, of those in Thessalonica. That just for the confessing the name of Jesus, there was a strong likelihood some of them would lose their life. Many of them would be put in prison. All of them would be shamed and guilted by the culture at large. And what he's saying is behind the scenes of it all, against any accusation, the proof of their life would demonstrate a love that stood as evidence against any attack made about it. Then, then they would be ready to stand against any persecution and they would have others standing with them because of their love for one another. You see, friends, a Christian's greatest influence begins by how we live to honor Jesus. When you don't see it and you don't know it, know this, people are watching it. And the way you live in the small, inconsiderable ways, the way that you posture yourself towards others, the way that you give of yourself without thought, this isn't about, okay, we need to plan one Saturday a quarter to make sure we do something kind. This is about seeing a person in need right in front of you and right around you and just doing a simple act that helps their day just be a little bit lighter because you never know when you're taking the weight of the world off their shoulders. It's funny how light the weight of the world can be for one to take off when the other's having to bear it. That's what Paul is telling us here. How how we live to honor Jesus, how we trust and rest in what he's done for us, how we know his joy increasingly as we continue that, how we produce more good in the world so our labors can be used to bless other people. The world becomes a better place when Christians live to honor Jesus as the priority of life. Friends, how are you loving other people? 
Is it something you feel like you've got to make special preparations to and, and you've got to make all these plans and it can't be implemented until it's perfectly written down and the plan is strategized? Or are you just sitting on geo ready to bless at any moment? And looking around, imagine how much less time you would be worried about yourself if you were just looking at other people going, how can I bless these people in a passing instant to make their life a little bit better today? I mean, that, that's an incredible strategy. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking, I'm hungry. I, I need to get first in line, right? I, I need to get there first or otherwise somebody else is going to get all of that that I want. How do you love others? Is this something that requires you to step out of the normal flow of your life? Or are you learning to build it in to the everyday of your life? Aspire to live quietly. That doesn't mean be a mouse, say nothing. It means don't be concerned with the size of footprint that you're making on the world with every word that you state but be content to let God use every word that you utter for his glory. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands. Produce. Bless. Love. Friends, we'll have to slow down. We'll have to consider others in giving of our time and our energy and our attention to be able to love them as Paul instructs. But as we do, God will be glorified and many will be blessed because the world will have more good. Might I just offer to you, this is the essence of our strategy for pray, invest, engage. Stop worrying about being Billy Graham and let God be God through you. Love other people as you are able, where you live, in every way that God leads you. Christian, live with the one priority to please God by loving others more and more in the normal, everyday routine and activity of your life. Friends, God gives more when Christians live with the one priority to please Him more and more in all of life. Let's pray.